podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey gang, quick bit of housekeeping for you before we start the show. And this is only relevant to those of you who listen to us on the Apple Podcast app or via Apple. So if you don't move along, as the great Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, nothing to see here. But if you do listen to us via Apple, listen carefully, particularly if you're an old school listener of the show. Before we became the Nat Coombs show on ESPN, when we were the NFL show, you would have got the show updated when we moved without having to do a thing. But that's because the old show had a divert put on it. So to check, you're subscribed to the new feed because the old one is going to go pretty soon. Check out the Nat Coombs show. Search for it on the app via the podcast browse section or the store section if you're looking on the desktop and find our show and see if it shows whether you're subscribed or not. If you are, great, you're on the right feed. If you're not, hit subscribe and delete the old one. So head on over, not in your library, but actually onto Apple. Search the Nat Coombs show. Make sure you're subscribed to the feed that you find. Simple. Good luck. Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombs Show on ESPN. Good to have you with us as we get closer and closer to the 2020 NFL Draft, which is going to be an altogether different proposition, gang. Iron Mike Carlson joins us to get us set for that one. We'll discuss all the big stories and controversies, divided opinion surrounding the draft and how it is going to play out. We're going to remember two bona fide NFL legends as well who sadly passed away in the last week. We will be raising a glass to them both and we'll sneak in a few of your mailbag questions as well. Just time for me to remind you that during the off-season, during this lockdown period, we're trying to push out as many pods as we can. So we've got a bonus one for you coming early next week. Watch this space with Stig Abel, uh, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement, uh, presents Front Row on Radio 4 as well. All about great sporting books to feed your mind during this difficult time. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. But let's get straight down to business with Iron Mike. Iron Mike, what's occurring? Oh, what's occurring? Well, it's a beautiful day. Uh, the dog and I will go out. We'll, we'll drag we'll drag my son along uh, to get some sunshine, vitamin D being very good for you. And um, sadly, I've got the, uh, an obituary to write of Alan Garfield, mm. the actor who... Um, you know, really great character actor for, um, from about 1970 till 2000. Um, sadly, you know, we're, we're, it's taking a lot of victims and, and it's very, yeah, it is. And, uh, as I mentioned in the, in our intro, we're going to raise a glass to two, uh, two NFL greats that passed this week. And, uh, you will, uh, talk more about their, uh, wonderful careers and, and their significance. Uh, and we'll do that a bit later on. Uh, incidentally, your Patreon column. Uh, really, really uh, beautiful piece you wrote about about one of them. I don't want to spoil who it is. We'll uh, we'll uh, discuss it later on. But Patreon.com forward slash Mike Carlson FMTE is where you can get Carlson's uh, stylings, and it is well worth a subscription and a read. So we'll get to those guys in a bit. We're going to stick some mailbag in as well, I Mike. Uh, you'll be glad oh, to hear. Yeah, um, never miss the mailbag. No, we can't. It would be remiss if we did that. Uh, but we're going to kick things off with some some news, some interesting stuff flying around. Obviously, the draft is taking uh, center stage, and uh, and that's what we'll uh, lead with. But uh, Tom Brady as well on uh, Howard Stern. Some interesting comments from <laughs> from Brady, an in depth interview. Um, so we'll we'll get into that too. But let's start with the draft. Um, evolving all the time, you know, since uh, coronavirus uh, hit. And, uh, to the degree that it has, it was always uh, inevitable that the draft was, was going to be pulled from its original game plan of you know, 
a, a, a mass attended event in Vegas in a public space. But we haven't really, up until very recently, quite understood exactly what form it's going to take. And even in the last few days, that has developed. So the, now the line is that it is a virtual draft with uh, with uh, team personnel all in their own respective uh, uh, homes engaging with Adam Broadcasters as well. We're still trying to work out how that element of it is going to uh, connect. But it doesn't seem to be as yet, Mike, based on what we can understand coming out of the states and coming out of, of teams and individuals collectively. It doesn't seem to be a, a, a cohesive plan. There seems to be discontent and there seems to be concerns even uh, you know, with the, the logistics of... I was reading a piece saying some front office guys were annoyed that or concerned about IT guys going into the house to be able to set this up to enable this virtual draft in the first place. And, and then it followed on saying some IT guys were concerned that <laughs> they have to go into the homes to set it up for, for the front office. So understandably not a completely fluent construct, but nevertheless, it seems to be still incomplete. Yeah. We? And I, I suppose it, it, it depends on how much access they need to whatever is on the computers centralized. Um, and, right. and not everybody is computer literate in, in the, um, in the football world. And I'm not making fun of them because I'm not particularly computer literate uh, okay. either. Okay. Um, John Harbaugh, I think was one of the leading critics, but you would expect that because he's try- probably trying to looking, look for some edge where he gets twice as much time as everybody else to, to make, <laughs> to make his, make his decisions. But do you reckon Belichick, cause you know, we, everyone always jokes about Belichick being a Luddite when it comes to tech. Do you reckon that is just a, a textbook Belichick hustling? I'm probably, sure, I'm sure it is. And, and, and I'm sure edge. he sat yeah. down with his cutting edge IT people to learn what he, what he right. needs to learn at some point. Right. Okay. Now, in my mind, and I've said this before, there's, I don't see any reason why they can't do the draft. You know, most of it is done by teams with, with their, their, their team is, is back at the team headquarters. Um, and they have a person or persons sitting at the desk in the, in the auditorium where the draft is taking place. I, for one, do not miss the, the kind of combination of, um, of, uh, you know, the first day of panic shopping and the Grammy Awards that, that is the telecast, the, the telecast <laughs> of, um, you don't I don't miss it, miss it at all. I don't, and I, I don't, don't fan, and I really right? don't need to see Roger hugging everybody, which, um, you know, Oh, that's my favorite bit. <laughs> yeah, you, you've always got off on strange awkward, things, though. The awkward, <laughs> the awkwardness of, yeah. of uh, Commissioner Goodell with the, with the first so, round picks. So, you know, I, I almost think that if they put it back to the days of Burt Bell as commissioner or the early days of Pete Rozelle where he would chalk the names up on a, on a blackboard, you know, first pick. Yeah, There's a famous it. photo of that, that that's around. But, yeah, but in Burt Bell's yeah, yeah. day, they, it was like he and the, you know, like 12 or 14 owners and general managers sat around a table, you know, but, but I, I think there's got to be some, there's some way of, of keeping everybody, everybody safe and, and doing the thing efficiently um, on the phone. Why are people so worried about it? Because I mean, I mean look, obviously it is not at, at, you know, a typical setup. And as you, as you rightly say, you've got the kind of cosmetic element of it, which is for the cameras, but then the war rooms and the, the collection of individuals together in one place and the access to data. But that's not exactly, well, it's not a tall yeah, insurmountable I, I, I think, problem. I think there's two things going on. And one, one is the unknown factor of, of people's right. concern and fear about the virus, you know, and we know it, it, it spreads I, I, randomly is probably the wrong word, but I, I'm, I, I'm sure there are people who've taken every possible precaution and you still run into it. 
Um, whereas yeah. there are people who don't and they never, and they never will because it, it, it's kind of a, just like its symptoms have been different from person to person, the way, the way that it attacks, sure. attacks people. I think that's, and that's a legitimate concern for anybody who's doing this. They don't want to put themselves in a position of increased danger. And this, so do you mean that to me, and that was the, the, the point I mentioned at the top. Do you mean the fact that there is going to be, in order to facilitate this access or there will be required yeah. access from people and therefore you could be exposed to it or are you is it more a case of a team might be worried that at the eve of the draft the day of the draft a, a key uh, a key uh, member of their team goes down with coronavirus god forbid and therefore that that was basically basically the second point that I was going to make that that concern is legitimate because you know how football works and how front offices work and and everybody is looking for an advantage and even more important than that they're looking not to fall behind other teams you know so and every time you hear a coach say I you know I get to the office at three in the morning and go to bed at four in the morning or vice versa you know of the other teams is why isn't our coach doing that you know um, but but if someone does get sick then that's going to put them at a disadvantage if they don't know how to work the equipment in it and they only have 12 minutes to make their pick in the end rather than 15 that puts them at a disadvantage you know um, if you're trying to make deals with other teams, can you communicate quickly enough? So I do see the very, the very real problems. And I, I was wondering if the real solution to that might be the equivalent of 32 um, isolation chambers um, set up in, in 32 locations uh, around, you know, at team facilities or whatever, instead of having it guys go in um, to people's homes you know, interesting. Set, yeah. Set, yeah. Yeah. So they're on set, site, but set yeah, up yeah. on site, a number of, of isolation booths, um, you know, much like yeah. the ones we've worked in, um, in and, and they're all cleaned and, you know, and, and ready to go, then bring the people in for that, for that week, you know, that weekend. And mm. for God's sake, don't make it a three day affair, you know, get it done. Um, as quickly as possible. So, I mean, there are probably ways to, to make this all work. And, and, you know, I think, I think that thinking it through is one of those things where from the top levels of government around the world to the bottom levels, we found this is very difficult to do because nobody really quite knows what to expect. Is it the right decision removing the, uh, the challenges in terms of the football? picks and uh, consistency of the draft this year compared to other years in terms of front offices being able to do what they do. And interesting that I saw a noted Kevin Colbert, the Steelers GM, say that each team should have three more picks to compensate for the the lower level of accuracy in terms of scouting, particularly the lower rounds, I think, was his point because of the impact that coronavirus has had on that process. Moving that side of it, in other words, how effective is each team and collectively, all the teams are going to be in, in in terms of the caliber of their picks compared to typical years. Is it the right move, Mike, for the NFL to be doing this at all, given the optics of ho- hosting an event like this, given what's going on right now? I think if they're thinking in any way of having a season this year, they almost have to do it. Um, mm. Now, whether they have to do it now or maybe next month is an open question because we know. And an important yeah, question, but, right? But – Here's the thing. Uh, if, if the virus isn't going to be eradicated within a month's time, which I doubt it will be, they'll be faced with the same situation a month later. 
Um, and maybe that's a good thing because it'll give them more time to work it out. But, but basically if they're, if they're hoping to be able to start a season more or less on time, it means that the teams are going to have to know about their draft classes with enough time to, to sort of finish off free agency. And hopefully I think in the NFL's mind, start training camps in July. Um, which I think is probably optimistic at this point. Hey, Mike, did you see what Tua said about the interview process uh, or the virtual meetings he was having? He said that he found it very difficult, which is an interesting point, really, that, you know, you look at at so many of us have been dealing with this and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, who maybe haven't necessarily typically used things like Zoom or Skype for for work have obviously had to over – uh, over the last few weeks and, and the NFL is no exception. And there is undoubtedly when you are evaluating and assessing personality, there, is, there are limitations there. And you know, it's, it's harder, particularly when it's someone you don't know and, or a group of people you don't know. And Absolutely. You're being grilled and questioned. You know, there, there's a, it's, it's, it's not a natural environment to be yourself and to be natural. So it is, um, it, you know, in, all these different interesting elements. To this. Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought was <laughs> was that a question? Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, no, I, I just wondered if you'd seen the two. No. Oh, look, that was the question. No, um, but he's absolutely right. You know that you, know, you, you deal with people face to face. You you get body language. You, you you see their their eyes when they when they're answering. Um, you know, I'm sitting here leaning back and leaning back in the chair, looking out the window while while I talk to you. Um, and my mind drifting away, and um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what often does yeah. to me. I'm and, sure. And you know, um, it, it, it's it's even more so with and you when you mentioned Kevin Colbert's suggestion of adding three rounds. You know, one of the big things with teams who sign on guys undrafted is they're often guys who they've gone to uh, say college pro days and mm. and watched work out. Uh, you know, outside the combine, uh, Malcolm Butler would be a great example of this. Um, they went to his college pro day. They realized that he had some skills that, you know, had not been evident when, when he was timed and things like that. And, and he got signed in the end. And, and face to face is, is much, much better than remote. Um, in, you know, yeah. in almost every, in almost every instance. Apart from when me and you do a pod mic, and, uh, <laughs> with, with the exception It's to the, the only world. way to get me to um, shut up is be able to just turn, turn me off. <laughs> <laughs> I finally worked it out after all these years. Uh, the other thing I was going to uh, mention was the, and then we'll move on from, because there's a ton of stuff we were going to get into. Uh, the mock draft, they're going to hose, hold all 32 teams are going to, uh, going to, oh, Rufus yeah, likes he, the he, idea yeah. of the mock draft. <laughs> so, we're going to replicate the, um, I haven't even mentioned the Jets yet. <laughs> He's already, he just knew just by it's association that does include the Jets. All well, when you say Mark, gonna, he assumes you mean the Jets. <laughs> they, um, they're going to, they're going to role play and, and, and work through the first round. And I've, I've got me thinking like how, presumably none of them are going to be stupid enough to show, <laughs> to show their well, hand on who they might pick. I wouldn't like, say, they, I wouldn't gonna, say none. <laughs> which, who is on your shortlist of, of teams that will actually show their hand and say who they're going to look, pick? Look, I'll trade you the first pick. I'll trade. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be really funny to see who these guys, I was figuring Winona Ryder was going to be like the first, the first round pick from Minnesota. Cause she, Winona's a town in Minnesota. So, so, oh, nice. so the, Vi- okay. the Vikings would pick Winona Ryder from Winona State, you know, something like that. It, it, it would be a real yeah. gas to see how, how they handle it, you know. The Rams select W. Axel Rose. With, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so uh, 
WrestleMania came and went, and the NFL <laughs> Association, of course, is, is the Gronk, who um, long time suggested when well, he's made a few appearances yeah. already, of course, cropping up, but was a was a key part of, of an altogether different. It was a brilliant days. move by by the WWE, who who understand marketing really well, um, you know, and um, by putting Gronk and making Gronk a, a a centerpiece of the show, it got it it got it a lot of the attention that it lost because it wasn't it was done in a, you know not in front of a crowd, um, and, yes. and so it lost a lot of attention that way. But um, I, I just love Gronk is now the twenty four seven champion of the WWF. Yes. Now, uh, since they've devalued every single belt. <laughs> Along the way, they have more more championship belts. I used to like those secondary belts, like the TV title. Back well, the, the, the ones who had TV title was great. Because, yeah, those, yeah, those those were always done with television time remaining, so that the match would start last on the card, and then when the TV show was over, if the match wasn't ended, it would be a draw. Um, but, <laughs> really? Is yeah, that like true? the ultimate dusty finish? Um, but, uh, but um, in this case, the the 24-7 title is a really intriguing one because theoretically mm. it, it can take place at any time, any place, right? So you can jump a guy in the street. Now, of course, wrestling demands a certain suspension of disbelief. And so the 24-7 title means that you can basically – uh, jump a guy in the street as long as there happens to be a referee and a WWE film crew there <laughs> to, to, to tape it. But we'll yep. let that go because, you know, because it's wrestling. So that idea is a really, is a really great one. And, is, and in a sense, it was wasted by having Gronk do it at WrestleMania, um, where obviously, you know, titles will, will hold, will change hands. But, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for, for them to stage that next scenario where Gronk is like on one of his Gronk boats or something doing party central. And then, and then one of the, one of the women on the boat they have sort to. of, yeah, sort of hugs him over the head with, with the championship belt that she's taken out of his stateroom or something and, and becomes the 24. So I, I can do, I, I, if Vince is listening, um, I can do a That's whole sure lot is. of good scenarios for that. You, your true calling has been missed, Iron Mike. That you, as a creative in WWE, was uh, something that should have happened. That never yeah, did. I mean, I, I've, I've looked at the way promotions have been booked over the years, and there were a number of them where I just, you know, just wished that that I had been involved. And I always do say my best work was as a heel commentator. Um, yes. On uh, it was about two thousand, I guess, on the Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge, which Nick Halling booked. And, and produced, um, and, and, um, at times I helped him write scenarios or do scenarios of that, but, but, uh, it was just such fun and probably my greatest ever work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it, I, I wouldn't argue with that. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Oh, yeah, on it's all on YouTube yes, it, now. Is it there? As, as a heel, would you ever have done a face turn? Uh, I would have loved to. We talked about that for the second series, um, but we never did a second nice. series, unfortunately. Um, it would have involved. It would have involved. We we didn't include Mark Webster in the discussion at that point, but it would have involved my turning on Mark Webster and be and beating him, <laughs> beating him up <laughs> at the announcer's table. <laughs> As, as stretching credulity there. Um, well, I, I caught up with Weber the other day. Actually, I did um, a piece with him for for West Ham's website. Yeah, I, uh, I love I love Webby. He's great. You know, one of the greats. Uh, right. Uh, speaking of which, let us roll on to uh, two uh, all-time NFL greats who who passed away in the last week. Starting with 
Tom Dempsey, and I mentioned at the top of our chat, Mike, your brilliant piece about him on your Patreon column, which really is uh, worth the read. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because we go way back. It's, it's beautifully written. He is uh, a player that, uh, overcame so much, didn't he, to, to achieve what he did. There's so much to his stories. So, so paint the picture and tell our listeners all about Tom yeah, Dempsey. Yeah, well, the th- I mean, the thing that most everybody knows about Tom Dempsey, you'd recognize it, is that he only had half of a foot on his right foot. He was born with no fingers and no toes on his right um, hand, arm and, and leg. And he was a big guy, loved playing football. So he played in high school as a defensive end. Um, and he played in junior college. And he started kicking uh, because no one else could kick. And he would wrap his leg in bandages and basically in effect, a barefoot kicker with his toes, only he had no toes. So he was, he was kicking with the, um, just what it was cut off of sort of just before the instep, um, that part of, of, of his shoe. And apparently he got thrown off of his junior college team for punching the coach. And, and, and right. somehow I think through Sid Gilman, this, this bit was unclear and I could never get it straightened out, but he, he wound up in Green Bay trying out for the Packers because he claimed that Vince Lombardi thought he could play foot, you know, a position. Um, he was a defensive end mostly and, uh, but played offensive tackle. He thought he could play a position and kick. Well, he turned out he wasn't really good enough to play at NFL level position player, which you'd expect, obviously, from a junior college guy. Um, but he could boom the ball and, Lombardi recommended that he go to the Atlantic Coast Football League, and he played one season for the Lowell Giants, Lowell, Massachusetts, in the Atlantic Coast Football League, which I was very much aware of because a lot of those teams were in my area in Connecticut. We had the Waterbury Orbits, the Bridgeport Jets, the Hartford Knights, who had originally been the Mm. Ansonia Black Knights. And... um, and as you described in your column, actually, just to just to dive in, because I, I love this description of, of the ACFL, it was an interesting mix of failed NFL prospects, local heroes with little or no college experience, and occasional players sent for development. Later, there would be a few farm teams in the league as well. So, uh, yeah, a real mishmash of always fascinating that kind of minor league. Yeah, and, and when I was looking back at it, you know, online, I was I was surprised at some of the names that turned up who mean nothing nowadays. But there's a guy called Bob Gathers who was a running back from New Mexico who was like the fourth pick overall in the NFL draft and never, never mm. made it in the NFL, but he was playing there the, the same year as Dempsey. Um, and a couple of big names like Marv Hubbard was probably the biggest um, Bob Tucker who played there anyway. Um, so he, he became a kicker and he was good enough. Um, missed no extra points, 42 for 42 to go to camp with the chargers the following year. And that changed his career because the chargers, Sid Gilman being a bright guy, the chargers sat down and built a boot for him that had a flat edge where the end of his foot was. So it looked like basically a sledgehammer. Um, it, it was right. that, it was that flat and that helped the kicking no end. His, he had a hugely strong leg, um, was great on kickoffs and like most toe kickers wasn't all that accurate. You know, it, it, it wasn't. And, and this is when soccer style kickers were just starting to come in the Gogolak brothers, Jan Stenerud, you know, in the, in the sixties. So um, it was kind of hit or miss, which kickers still are, but at a much higher degree of, of accuracy um, over the years. So he didn't make the charges, but he spent the year on his pra- on the practice squad. The next year he signed with the saints. That was 69. And he had such a good year that he was basically the first team all pro kicker. And then in 70, he kicks the 63 yard field goal to win the game in the last play against the lions. 
from his own 37-yard line because in those days the they had moved the goalposts up from the back of the end zone to the front of the end zone. So it was from his own 37. It cleared by about a yard, if you watch it. You hear the thud if you get the right video. Um, and, <laughs> and it was like a kickoff, basically. Um, and mm. oddly enough, he didn't, and I say this is sad in a sense, he didn't progress from that point like many other kickers, like most other kickers in the league. He was still inconsistent. He missed, I think it was seven out of eight kicks in preseason the next year. And got cut by the Saints, but he he signed on. He had a, a long NFL career, starting in Philadelphia. He had he had one or two really good years in Philadelphia, and then and then kind of mediocre, and, and eventually retired from the game. And then um, he worked for Tom Benson in a car lot, the owner of the Saints. He was a salesman. He was a big character. There were great stories from his wife about how he courted her at the old Absinthe House in on Bourbon Street in, in the French Quarter, and, and he was a good mm. a good time guy. And then they went off in 2013, I think it was, to, to some kind of NFL reunion in Las Vegas. Um, you know, one of those kind of autograph shows, I think. And um, there was a guy. There was a guy there who was a, um, a neurologist. And when he started describing CTE symptoms to the, the players at a meeting, you know, to, to encourage them to get checked and all, Dempsey's wife said, that's you, because he had started to have memory losses. He started to have angry periods. And it turned out that he was suffering from very severe CTE and he had two holes in his brain. Um, it's unusual for kicker, yeah, right? Yeah, and, you know, he was... He liked to play the game. So he was a wedge buster, you know, where most kickers stay back mm. as a safety. He went down on the kicks. And, and there was one where he made a tackle <laughs> and knocked him. I'm trying to remember who it was who he knocked out. But he knocked himself silly and went to the wrong bench. And, and literally the, the other guys, the teams, guys in the team had to lead him back across the field. to, to He walks to the wrong side. Yeah. So we don't know. As with everything in, in CTE, we don't know how much of it was contact, how much of it was, was other, other factors. Um, in in his life, how much of it might have gone back to his young days playing football, and and when you talk about two holes in the front of his brain, whether that was some sort of congenital flaw connected with with um, his loss of finger fingers and toes. So, but but the, the the upshot of it was he was in a nursing home getting care for for Alzheimer's um, in New Orleans, and of course the virus goes through nursing homes like crazy, and and that's that's how he died. But you know, as I say in the piece, I just like to think of him as someone who really worked hard, you know, sacrificed a lot to do what he loved to do, like many of the guys in the Atlantic Coast Football League. And I think it was a really had a really happy time doing that too and a good life. And and you know, I feel glad for him. Well said, Mike. Um one quick question on on kickers actually. When what year or which era did uh, NFL teams pivot into having specialist kickers as opposed to players who doubled up and had another role as well as kicking. that was that was probably more or less universal by the late 60s um mm. and i'm trying to think of who there were guys to who still punted i think chuck lamalur punted and returned punts as well in the 70s um in emergencies or whatever but i think by the end of that decade it had pretty much become 
standard that, that you had specialist, um, either a kicker, punter, or both, you know, and then it became specialists. And then, of course, you started having specialist holders because you didn't want to waste your, uh, practice time on a safety or a backup quarterback, um, who were, who were holders. Um, but most of the really good kickers up to that time had been players as well. Jim Bakken and Don Chandler, I think, were probably the two best in the 60s who um, who weren't players. Pat Summerall had started as an end, um, but then was only an emergency player for most of his career, was a full-time kicker. And so that's that's mm-hmm. late 50s, you know, right, right through. Um, and you mentioned the um, introduction of soccer-style kicking, but also in the piece you talk about that phase when kickers kick barefoot as well. So talk us through yeah, that a little bit. Yeah, that was mostly, I think, because, I mean, Rob Hart, who I knew really well, who kicked for the Monarchs and, and Claymores and um, kicked barefoot at Murray State. Um, and he said he just got a better feel for the ball um, with it. Now, remember, you know, a football, American football has a very small s- sweet spot in it. And hitting that consistently is the hard thing to do. A rugby ball, it's much bigger and easier to hit. And with your instep, mm. in a sense, Dempsey, you know, Tech Schramm tried to change the rules because he said Dempsey had an unfair advantage. And Dempsey said, yeah, you try kicking with half a foot. Um, and, and yes, he might have gained some distance from his um, from his, his hitting surface, but he lost a lot of accuracy because of it, because you're, you're missing the sweet spot. You're going all around it. And the same is true in, a, in effect with your instep, but you can narrow that down with the instep to, of, of your foot. And, and in fact, you know, when Dempsey's record was finally broken, um, uh, by by Matt Prater, and it was tied three times. Two of the three tie- guys who tied it and Prater all were kicking in Denver, where you gain at least 5% distance uh, on your kicks. But that's neither here nor there. But most of the early guys who kicked barefoot, Tony Franklin being the best, said it was because the kicking shoe um, or the football, the normal football shoe, didn't give them enough touch on the ball. They, they couldn't get the feel. Nowadays, they make kicking shoes that have, you know, very, very thin, um, doe skin, I think it is, on the, um, on the instep surface of your, instep, of your yeah. kicking foot so that you can get much more touch on the ball. And of course, kicking soccer style, you not only generate more torque and distance, you can also bend the ball a little bit, which you can't really do when you're kicking uh, with your toe. It's pretty much a straight line. I was interested to see, just Googling around, you know, that rugby kickers kick toe style until the until late 50s or 60s when, when soccer style kicking started to come in in rugby as well. Um, and I hadn't, I had never realized, realized that at all. And, and, um, you know, I should have got myself a, a flat, a flat toed kicking shoe back in the day. I write about that in the column. I won't give it away. You do. Yeah. yeah no, no. Yeah, exactly. I was going to, I won't spoil the whole column. Um, but it is interesting. Although I'm not sure I believe the story about you years later on, on TV. I, I, I have did witnesses. <laughs> yeah, I, have you do. I did sympathize with um you suggesting that you were getting stitched up most weeks as, as happened to me <laughs> yeah that, that that happened a lot i got really angry at a producer who when i beat when i beat um one of the barcelona dragons bowling um yeah edited a gutter ball that the guy the dragons guy had thrown <laughs> as on my last roll which i which i which yes. i rolled a nine to beat the guy, of course. and of course, when of course we I did. saw the edited program, program, um, I had a gutter ball, and he won, and <laughs> I got really angry at that one. 
<laughs> don't get me started on this. Ali, our producer, is nodding sagely at me, uh, moaning for hours and hours when we were in Miami, about getting stitched up on the uh, the various throws and kicks I was doing. Uh, but like I said, it didn't take the producers. Uh, it didn't take them much to to make me look bad on those. So Tom Dempsey, and uh, as we say, go read the the piece in depth that Mike has written. Uh, Bobby Mitchell, uh, the other player, Hall of Famer, uh, who uh, died aged 84. Uh, such an important player for, for so many reasons. A hell of a player, Mike. And, and of course, was the Washington Redskins' first black player, the Redskins being uh, the last team in the NFL to integrate. An interesting quote on on that straight off the bat, because obviously that was one of the significant aspects of, of his uh, career. Um, Jim Brown, the great Jim Brown, who... Uh, of course, the fellow Hall of Famer, and they were great friends, said uh, that Mitchell had to suffer for being black more than any person I know that played football at the time that I played. With that kind of ability, if you were white, everybody on this earth would know who he was. Uh, uh, tell us about uh, about Bobby Mitchell, what kind of player he was and what he went through. Yeah, that, that's probably not much of an exaggeration from Jim Brown, although he also had to suffer by playing with Jim Brown because no one was going to sure. be a feature back in a backfield that included Jim Brown. Um, so that, that <laughs> right. was a difficult thing, but Bobby Mitchell, um, it's important <laughs> because it, it really encapsulates the whole issue of race, not only in, in football, but American sport. And I'm writing a piece about, about him too, because he's the hero on one hand and the villain on the other hand is George Preston Marshall, who was the owner of the Washington Redskins going back to when they started as the Boston Braves in 1932. Um, and George Preston Marshall grew up in Washington, which was a Southern city, a segregated city, very much segregated city. When I went there in 62 on a family vacation, my brother got sick at the top of the Washington monument. And when we went down, the, the, the restrooms were segregated. Um, and I'd never seen that before. And I asked my father about it. He said, I said, he said, well, that's what they do here. I said, that's not right though, is it? He says, no, it's wrong, but that's what they do. And, and some guy cold eyed him, you know, and <laughs> my father cold eyed him back and nothing happened. <laughs> but anyway, Bobby Mitchell was from Arkansas, but he went to the University of Illinois because obviously if he stayed in Arkansas, he would have had to go to Arkansas State or, um, one of the all black colleges in, in the South. And, and he was so good that he was recruited by Illinois. Um, and, um, had a great, college career limited because of injury but his first carry um, was the 64 yard touchdown run against the University of Michigan who were rated number three in the country at the time and they up, Illinois upset them in that game behind Mitchell at a 173 yards of rushing he was also the star of the 58 college all-star game where they beat the Detroit Lions the college all-stars in August um, he caught two touchdown passes from Jim Nanowski they were co-MVPs but it was one of those deals where the quarterback becomes co-MVP by throwing up uh, you know a hitch to Bobby Mitchell, who then takes it 84 yards for a touchdown. Um, <laughs> but he also ran track and held a world record. I never knew this, but 7.7 seconds for the 70-yard hurdles, which didn't last long as a world record um, for some – I don't know who broke it, but obviously nobody runs 70-yard hurdles, <laughs> not it's even insane. in America. Bring that yeah, it was yeah. always 60 yards indoors and 110 outdoors. But anyway, so Paul Brown liked him so much that he gave him a $7,000 contract, even though he drafted him, I think, in the fourth round. Um, and he went into the backfield with Jim Brown. And the problem with that was, obviously, you're, you're with the greatest running back of all time. And Paul Brown wasn't going to use 
Mitchell the way, say, the Packers used Jim Taylor and Paul Horning later on when Vince Lombardi was the head coach. Brown wasn't going to do a lot of lead blocking on power sweeps because you, you didn't right. want him to get hurt, basically. You, you didn't want right. him to get worn out. And so, but Mitchell still had a great, a great, um, statistics running and receiving out of the backfield. Um, he was a bit, the best comparison is probably, um, um, Lenny Moore. The best comparison is probably Lenny Moore on the Colts. Um, a guy with, with similar skills. And when you watch tape of Mitchell, he's, he's not as big He's bigger than he looks on tape, but he's bow-legged like many sprinters are, and he's got great balance. So when, when he, when he faints, when he deeks, uh, tacklers, he keeps his balance really well. And, and that was, that was a really good skill. And if you got him into the open field, um, that would be, that would be great. Now, what happened was in 1962, um, by this time the Redskins were playing in Washington, obviously, and they'd, they'd been terrible for a long time, but, the uh, D.C. Stadium, which is now RFK, um, was owned by Washington, D.C., which is run by the federal government. It's not actually an independent state or anything like that. And so Bobby Kennedy and the Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, told Marshall that if he did not integrate the Washington Redskins, they would revoke his lease on the stadium. And for Williams, money always talked, probably as strongly as right. prejudice, um, if not more so. And so his first step was to take Ernie Davis in the draft with the first right. pick. And Ernie Davis was like Jim Brown from Syracuse and was the best running back in college. And I have no doubt would have been a great pro. But Ernie Davis said, I'm not going to play for that son of a bitch, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, and um, so – so in the end, Paul Brown coveted Ernie Davis, and he traded um, um, Bobby Mitchell and another a guy he drafted in the draft called Leroy Jackson um, to to the Skins for Ernie Davis, who then went to you know went to Cleveland's camp and was diagnosed with leukemia and, and died soon afterwards. So he never played in the NFL, but a backfield of Jim Brown and Ernie Davis would have been even more devastating than a back. My God, than, and, and also it would have been meant that they had a succession from Jim Brown who retired you right. know, at 29 because uh, he had better things to do basically. So the only, just as a side note on that, the, the, the Ernie Davis movie, the express is, is well yeah, worth it. It, it actually is. It, Add that to yeah, the it's, um, it's a bit disnified, but it, it, the basics of the story are, are really good. And, and I think, um, Dennis Quaid is really Dennis as good as well. Ben yeah, Schwar- Schwarzenwalder, um, who was nowhere near as good looking as, as Dennis, Dennis Quaid. Quaid. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And, but, um, anyway, so he plays for the Redskins who move him to flanker, which is what happened with Lenny Moore as well. And Frank Gifford, you know, another guy with similar kind of skills, which, which flanker was wide receiver more, you know, more or less. And they, you'd have a split end and a, and a flanker. And um, and they were pretty well defined positions. And he had some great seasons um, as a pass receiver because in a little when you watch him, he's a little bit like Steve Smith in that he he's physical enough with defensive backs who could be all over you in those days to get himself mm. open. His hands were great, and then once he's got the ball, he can make space for himself. Um, when Otto Graham took over as coach. Uh, they, they, they wound up getting Charlie Taylor, who was also a running back in college. And 
Graham saw in Charlie Taylor the same sort of skill set as Bobby Mitchell. So they tried to, um, they tried to play the two of them together and then eventually moved, uh, Bobby Mitchell back to running back. Uh, and they had, they had Jerry Smith was their tight end and a guy called Pat Richter who had been a star split end at Wisconsin in that famous Rose Bowl game of 61. And then had mostly been a, he was too big and too slow for an NFL split end. So he'd mostly been a punter, but then they used him occasionally a tight end. So they used two tight ends, splitting one of them out with Charlie Taylor as the, um, as the flanker and uh, Bobby Mitchell in the backfield. It wasn't that successful and Mitchell got hurt um, and eventually retired probably a little bit early, but went into scouting. Um, Vince Lombardi took over with the Redskins, gave him a job as a scout, and he became the assistant general manager. Um, interestingly enough, Edward Bennett Williams, who got the team from Preston Marshall, passed over him as general manager to hire Bobby Bethard. And then 20 years later, Jack Kent Cook, you had to have three names to own the Redskins in those days. Apparently so, um, yeah. Passed over him as general manager for Charlie Connerly. And apparently Bobby Mitchell was bitter about that, although he never publicly sort of indicated that because he was too much of a gentleman mm. to do that. He wound up being um, three times first team all pro, twice second team all pro, four pro bowls. Um, and, you know, just, as I say, just a tremendous player to watch. Jim Brown's right, you know, because Mitchell trying – trying to trying to uh, exist in in a largely in a largely white universe i think he was held back more in the front office than as a player in in the end um and the other guy who's overlooked a lot in this business is that john nisby went to washington in another trade in 62 who was a black guy a black guard who played for the steelers and had a pro bowl year in 62 was a really good player and so he integrated the steelers along with bobby mitchell and a, a fullback called ron hatcher who didn't have a long career but you know that was a big step forward for the nfl and um i'm sure it was basically done over preston marshall kicking and screaming um <laughs> and i guess mitchell must have been a major player in you know is you were you know playing a lot mike high school and college he must be you know one of the stars of that era for you so yeah those players always have a kind of a real they, resonance they really do and and you know i think guys because because they weren't feature backs and because it was still a three yards and a cloud of dust kind of league those guys tend to be a little bit undervalued um if you heard bill belichick talk about lenny moore in the um in the pro football 100 uh, and he yes. talks about how great Lanny Moore was. Bobby Moore, Bobby Mitchell was in that category of player. Um, somewhere in modern terms between a wide receiver and a running back, but he would have been a featured back nowadays. Um, you know, maybe a third down back if the coach didn't have enough vision, uh, or needed one. But, um, the other interesting thing about Bobby Mitchell, there's a famous photograph, um, when there was a summit, uh, of black athletes to support Muhammad Ali in the draft, uh, and it's very famous. You've got Bill Russell and Jim Brown and Lou Alcindor, who was still in college and still called Lou Alcindor, not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. At that point, they're mm. sitting down in the front row, and then there's a bunch of guys who are, most of whom are more or less forgotten right behind them, and right behind them in the middle of that is Bobby Mitchell. And you can see mm. just looking at him how tough he was. Um, and, and, of course, you look at that photograph and your, your respect for all the guys in there just grows exponentially 
when you think about what they're standing up for, um, who they right. are collectively, what they accomplished on the field and what they were trying to accomplish off the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Bobby Mitchell, a Hall of Famer who passed away aged 84, uh, this week. Uh, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful summary of his, uh, of his life and career, Mike. Thanks for that. We're going to sneak in a couple of questions from the mailbag before we get out of Dodge, though. Starting with, uh, Richard. Appreciate this, Richard. At the NC show is how you get in touch with us. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And Richard's used the latter. Will the lack of pro days for players in this year's draft, asked Richard, affect how future draft prep is conducted? So that's a point we didn't really cover in particular when we were chatting yeah, about I, it earlier. I mentioned on. that with undrafted guys. Um, I don't think it will. Um, if anything, I think pro days become more and more valuable um, because of the way the combine works out between guys who aren't invited to the combine or guys who aren't ready for the combine. I think it's, it's essential to teams when you only have seven draft picks to get out there and see as many guys as you can at pro days. I think, I think missing them will make them seem more important to teams. Oh, I see. So what, so you don't, if anything, it'll enhance yes. the importance as opposed to creating an alternative. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Um, now, uh, you'll recognize, uh, our, ne- the question from our next, uh, listener. I say listener, more, uh, a regular. Oh, Rufus likes it. Rufus got a question as well. Or, <laughs> no. What, 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 what that means is somebody's walking by the house. <laughs> okay. All right. It's a family yeah, show, ahead, so tell ahead. Rufus to hold it up. From uh, Asmir Begovic, I think you recognize oh, the name. Um, yeah, I've Asmir. heard of him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you might. might. Asmir wants to know, Mike, uh, thoughts on the Bucks new uniform? Oh, you know, I watched that video because I, I didn't realize it was a new uni video. I thought it was going to, it said like we're introducing something new. And I was sitting there watching and, you know, the three guys, uh, David and Smith and, and uh, Goodwin, I think it was, um, you know, in their little clips with the music going. And I was convinced at the end, the music was going to switch to Kenny G and Tom Brady was going to walk out. <laughs> oh, on the wow. side. And, but it did, it didn't happen. Um, you know, so the, so there you go. So and, and Tom Brady, of course, was the big star this week too, going on uh, the Howard Stern show. On Stern, yeah, of course. I, I said at the top we talk about it, and uh, and then I we completely forgot, you, completely forgot yeah. about it. Well, hey, you could uh, you could always do that. So he talked. To, I mean, one of the interesting takeaways from that was uh, he said that he felt he knew that for much of last season it was going to be his last season. Like is, he knew, the story had already been written there. We've been speculating, is he going to stay, is he not? But Brady seemed to suggest that he knew he was, it was a I, I think, I think you could see that, you know, in retrospect. I didn't certainly at the time in the way it went. And a quote came out, um, you know, this week of Brady saying that he and Belichick, you know, were on the same page. He told Belichick if he didn't trust a receiver, he wouldn't throw to him. So don't bother putting him on the field. And, and we saw mm. a lot of that last year, I think, with the guys they were running through at, at wide receiver. Um, and he talked, you know, he talked about, I think he's done as much as he can do. And, and I think he just wanted to go out and, and prove he had more left in the tank, maybe. Um, and we talked about the move to, um, to Tampa as being on the surface. I didn't think it was a good fit, but the more you think about it with the weapons he has with Bruce Arians there um, to coach, it could well be a chance for him to show that, you know, he, he a isn't a system quarterback in which he never was in New England because they ran about 10 different systems and uh, B that he's not washed up. So I think that works out for good. I found the most interesting part, probably, you know, the, the saga of living in Derek Jeter's house in Tampa, 
and, and, <laughs> I and, and like I'm that. with the walls around it. I'm wondering if he's on the Davis Islands in Tampa, where my friend Mike Connolly had a house. Um, it's a really lovely, lovely place to live. Um, and also how there isn't really much interesting in the in the interview and and when it comes you know there's a, a few interesting things about his relationship with Giselle you know namely that you know she was feeling like she wasn't getting enough of his time and attention yeah, that counseling, and right? so he didn't go to OTAs because of that and I found that I found that very interesting you know she wrote a letter to him explaining those things I thought that just sounds so so great you know so and so Brady-esque you know that they they do that and if you read Charlie Pierce's book about Brady he makes a big deal of his empathy for women, how, you know, how, he, how he's somebody who they empathize with as well as, as vice versa. Mm. But when, you know, when he could have said a couple of interesting things about the virus or about um, race relations in, in the NFL and, and, and um, they tried to get him into politics, you know, maybe via the virus. Uh, and he was trying to differentiate between his friendship with Trump and his, his, um, his uh, friend, his political stances. You know, I, I think that would have been really interesting, but of course that's not Tom Brady. I never expected he would say anything, um, you know, take, sure. take a stand there. He's basically, um, he basically tries to keep himself very neutral in anything that might offend, offend the public. And, and to an extent, you know, you would like him to once, you know, occasionally just step up and, and, and take a, a public stance when he talks about. I wonder whether he might do after he finishes playing. It's an interesting point. And, 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 and I, and I get it that you, you're, I guess, suggesting that that's always been, you know, his MO it, it, to kind of protect the Brady brand, as it were, and is kind of conscious of, you know, not offending as so many athletes are. Right? Yeah. Because, yeah. I think that's, you know, that's obviously going to be part of it. Yeah. But, you know, when, when you talk same, about coronavirus and if you say, you know, don't, don't fall for the media frenzy and panic, that's true to an extent. You know, you don't want to panic. You want to approach things rationally. But it also smacks of endorsing the fake news agenda, which you don't really want mm, to be doing at this stage. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Misguided, uh, maybe. Misguided. Um, we're out of dodge, yeah, uh, out of time, I, I'm afraid. One other thing, I, I see you're going to talk to my man Stig about books. Yes, we and, are. We are. We're doing a, a special pod with Stig Abel. Yeah, right. I'll give you just three, the three best fiction books about American mm. football. The, th- nice the three best okay. novels. And you can run them by Stig. He might, you know. Okay. And, okay. You got your pen? Yeah, you're all set? Mm-hmm. I'm ready. I'm all set. One is A Fan's Notes by Frederick Exley, which is kind of a nonfiction novel. It's, it's a memoir, but it's actually fictionalized to a great extent. One, two is End Zone by Don DeLillo, which, mm, now that which is all about American football and, um, and American society. And three is North Dallas 40, which I think is the best, of the best kind of from a player's point of view. Um, uh, and from the game point of view, how the game itself functions. Um, and, and it's also the best football movie still not surpassed after what is it now? <laughs> 50 years or more 40 or years, less. 50 yeah. years, blimey. Nick yeah, Nolte yeah. and Mac Davis in the movie. I think you're forgetting Varsity Blues. Right? <laughs> bold, bold statements like that. Uh, cracking stuff at Carlson Sports is how you follow the big man on Twitter. So make sure you do. And one more time for the blog, patreon.com forward slash Mike Carlson FMTE. Stay safe, bro. Check in yeah, soon. Be careful out there, as Sergeant Phil used to say. <laughs> Look after yourself, mate. Cracking stuff from Iron Mike, patreon.com forward slash Mike Carlson FMTE is where you can read his stylings. Uh, so make sure you get involved with that. As I said at the top of the show, bonus pod dropping 
with Stig Abel Sporting Books, not just NFL, but all American sports we're looking at, books to uh, fill your time, to feed your mind over the coming weeks. So keep your eyes peeled for that. It will be dropping in your podcatcher of choice very, very soon. Hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back same time, same place next week. See you then. Bye for now. Podcast Network.